Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. Hello. Hello, Daniel. Yes, this is Daniel. <laughs> it's Amy and Jamie with Clever. Hello, how are you? Good, how are you? Good, and you? We are hanging in there. It's a little early. That's, I know. So you have to excuse my voice. It's going to get too, I mean, it doesn't clear out until like mid-morning. <laughs> <laughs> it's going to be this deep, unfortunately. No, it sounds good. It's very sultry. Okay, perfect. <laughs> <laughs> everyone, I'm Jamie. I'm Amy, and this is Clever. Today we're talking to designer and architect Daniel Germani. He was born and raised in Argentina, has lived and worked all over Europe, and now runs his practice out of Phoenix, Arizona. He always knew he wanted to be an architect, but he's taken a circuitous route to get there, including stints in the military, various media-based entrepreneurial endeavors, and a master's in international business from Thunderbird School of Global Management. He's talented, passionate, and very outspoken about his disdain for tchotchkes. Have a listen. My name is Daniel Germani. I live in Phoenix, Arizona. I'm uh, an architect and a designer, and uh, I love what I do. I've been doing this for... Um, more years that I want to admit, uh, but uh, I love doing design and I love designing products. So you were born and raised in Buenos Aires. Do you want to tell us a little bit about your childhood and what your family was like? I was born in Buenos Aires back in uh, 1964, raised by a loving mother and father. I have a sibling. My brother is four years younger, Federico. I went to uh, school in Buenos Aires, uh, to a Catholic school, surrounded by priests. So that was um, a very interesting education that I had. I'm not going to deny that it helped shape a lot of my uh, value system, value system that I sort of revisited after I grew up and some of, some of the things that, you know, I was faced with sort of like when in contrast, you know, like the, mm -hmm. the, the, I contradicted who I was. So I had to revisit that. But it was a very happy childhood. Buenos Aires is a beautiful city, very vibrant. 
full of rich architecture, full of beautiful places, beautiful parks, and uh, I had a great childhood. I was fortunate enough to have parents that allowed us to do and follow our dreams and always supported that. So in that aspect, I feel that I'm a very lucky bastard, actually. (laughs) (laughs) Were you downtown or did you live like in a suburb of the city? I lived in what was considered uh, downtown, like Capital Federal is what most people know as Buenos Aires is Capital Federal, and that is uh, downtown. I lived in a high rise all my life. And so it's a very busy, hectic, noisy uh, way of living. And I truly, truly enjoyed it. I mean, it was that time where you could go and go play with your friends and leave your house at 2 p.m. and come back at 9 and nobody would, you know, flinch or, or, or worried. There were, this was before cell phones. This was before everything. So... I guess that that gave us a sense of freedom and gave us tools to sort of like deal with life. My dad worked for IBM and my mom was a teacher. So we lived a life where we were going to school in the morning and we had a lunch break. uh, And then we went back to school in the afternoon to uh, study English and then you know, we were free at four o'clock and then we would play sports or we would go back home or go out with friends to just, you know, wander around. And nobody really was with you during the daytime. I mean, it was it was us, like just wandering and exploring. And, and I think that that gave me a very beautiful sense of freedom. How did you find that you started engaging your own creativity? Like, how did that start showing up? You know, I loved from the very from a very young age to draw. I loved drawing, and um, I always knew I wanted to be an architect. To be honest, I knew that you know I did not want to be a doctor. I did not want to be a lawyer. I did not want to be an engineer. Uh, I wanted to be an architect, and uh, I guess that that just wandering around and looking at buildings and and just looking at things made me the way I am today. From a very young age, I always enjoy good design or design in general, because what forms you is not only good design, but also bad design. I mean, if I revisit some of the things I used to like, I cringe right now. But, you know, it's all part of your formative years. And I think that everything inspired me. I mean, I'm the kind of dude that walks around and stops because a branch of a tree has a weird shape and I take a picture and you know maybe weird like that but that sometimes inspires me in ways that I only learned later I mean we all have these sort of like bookshelf full of images that you put in your brain and somehow they all sort of interconnect it also helped the fact that when I was eight my dad had to uh, moved to uh, Italy. We lived in Milan for a full year. We moved with the whole family, with my brother and my mom. And uh, I was homeschooled that year. And the experience of living in Milan and during weekends, for example, my dad would grab the car and we would go have picnics in the Alps. I mean, it sounds, you know, 
silly, but the experience of just being in the surrounding that is so beautiful. And, you know, we would go do groceries in Switzerland because it's 40 minutes away. And you experience all of these things and you see all these beautiful buildings and you see all these, you know, beautiful uh, history that all these places have. And I think that that helped me also shape. I have vivid memories of what living in Milan was back then. This was back in the 70s, and I remember, you know, uh, ashtrays with designs that back then were, you know, the rage. Now they're coming back, and you buy them in antique stores. Back then, they were everywhere, and there were these beautiful acrylic sort of like ashtrays with designs and publicities, and, and those kind of things, somehow they get stored in your brain, and they come out eventually, and, you know, they inspire you. So... Uh, I cannot put a finger how that started, but I know that it started from a very young age. So I'm really curious. You say you always knew you wanted to be an architect. And I'm wondering, was there a point in your youth when you kind of realized that architecture was a profession? I think that it took me a while. I took buildings and cars and things like that for granted. It took me a while to understand that somebody was actually in charge of making those things. Do you remember (laughs) when you figured that out for yourself and decided that's what you wanted to be? Well, definitely, probably in my early teens. I was very fortunate in that my family was very much in tune, my dad especially, with design. And my uncle um, was also very in tune with design. And uh, another uncle that we have also, she was a ceramist, and she would do beautiful ceramics. And, you know, we come from a family that that always appreciated and valued this, you know, having an, sort of like an artistic sensibility. But that is a great question. I don't know if I remember when I clicked and it it became sort of like, okay, this is where I can make a living. I think it was kind of an organic process when I was able to understand better what being an architect meant was probably my teens. And, you know, in Argentina, you like here, you go to college at age 17. So I think that I already sort of like started my high school years to really have an idea. I love design. I always love colors. I always told my mom how I wanted my room painted. I love collecting art uh, and little cars and I didn't know how to put it into shape, but I always knew that I had an interest for it. With this love of architecture crystallizing in your teens, it makes sense that you decided to study that in college. Yeah. What were the college years like for you? Sometimes it can be sort of demystifying in a grand way to figure out how things are done and how things are built. And sometimes you can become disillusioned in a way that's not enchanting. I'm just wondering how your college years shaped you. You had to apply um, back then and do a test to get into the first year of college. The first time that I um, applied for the test, I failed it. I was also supposed to do the military. I mean, there was a draft uh, at the time in in Argentina, and I got uh, drafted to do the military. Uh, so my alternative was I put on hold everything and I do the military and get it out of the way or I go straight to architecture and do both at the same time. Well, I have the brilliant idea to do both at the same time. So I was serving in the military in the morning, waking up at 4.45 every morning and it wasn't the Coast Guard that I did it. 
and leaving at one o'clock, getting home at two, changing clothes to go to school and start my first year of architecture. I approved and passed the second time that I applied the following year. So the first year of my career, I had to do both the military and the first year of architecture. It was challenging because of the crazy schedule, but I don't think I got disappointed by what I found out. I was very driven that I was already feeling that I failed because I didn't pass in the first year. So I was determined to prove everybody that I was worth it and that I could do it. And I think that that instilled in me a little bit of a fighter sort of feeling in me where I had to prove everybody that, you know, it was just a misstep, not that I was a failure. Like, you know, I always say I wanted to be an architect and the first time that I apply, I get rejected. So the second time around, I was determined to make it happen and not even the military got in the way. Because I'm a fighter. You know, I do believe that we all are faced with adversity and I don't let adversity get to me. It almost gives me more power and more fire to go on rather than defeat me. So after college, you kind of went all over Europe and you said that you engaged in various creative and entrepreneurial endeavors. So I would like to know what those were and what you did and where you lived. So after I graduated from architecture that I got my degree, I went to work in a construction firm in Rome at age 24. So it was another layer of having an amazing opportunity to shape my design aesthetic. So here I am, a 24-year-old that graduates, and it's fresh. You're like a sponge, ready to absorb everything that the world has to give you. You're in a foreign country, and you're being presented with this incredible opportunity. And I think that, like, that solidifies sort of my aesthetic. I was lucky enough that the firm where I was working, the wife of the owner, She's an architect, and um, her sensibility was incredible. Her aesthetic was incredible, and she introduced me to the world of Italian crafts and Italian design and Italian everything. I'm a little obsessed with Italy. I mean, you will you will know as, as we go along that Italy played an important role in who I am today, not only as a designer but as a person. So. I worked as an architect in Rome for a while. After six years of being in Rome, we developed um, something completely unrelated to architecture, but there was an opportunity. My, the owner of the company was one of those guys that will have his hands on 10 different things. And those 10 different things didn't mean that they were all architecture related. They were projects that include telecommunications, there were projects that include press, there were projects that involved media, and um, we were presented with this opportunity to develop this product, which now seems totally trivial, but back in the day felt like it was so groundbreaking. There was a way to create a front page of a paper that was delivered to hotels. So basically what we did is we developed this product that was sort of like a briefing of the news that they were relevant for the 10 most sort of like relevant 
countries in Europe that there were the tourists in Europe. So, for example, you will walk into a hotel and you will see this display, and it will have front covers of news. And if you were American, there will be a paper that looked like the New York Times. And if you were Spanish, there will be a paper that looked like El Mundo. And if you were Italian, there will be a paper that looked like Corriere de la Sera. And so in that paper, we would give you all the briefings of all the news of the day. This is before the internet was so broadly used and, and of course, made this product completely sort of like obsolete. But they gave me an opportunity to say, hey, um, do you want to open Spain? And I said, sounds like a fun opportunity. I thought about, you know, living in another country. And it wasn't related to architecture, but it was entrepreneurial. And I thought, why not? Let's take it. And so I took Spain and I developed the market for Spain. And it was this really, really interesting experience. It took me away from architecture for a while, but it really gave me an understanding of what it means to be an entrepreneur for the first time in my life. And I think that that was a very, very helpful tool now that I look in hindsight for today, and because today I'm an entrepreneur. And at what point were you like, okay, I'm ready to go get a master's degree? Because you got one in international management. Can you talk about how you came to that decision and actually what that means? <laughs> yeah, this is an MBA with an international sort of focus. Uh, so basically what I decided is I didn't have any formal education on how to run a business. I really didn't. I mean, what I had was what I learned by myself or life taught me. And I thought, you know, as an architect, like if you are a doctor, a lawyer, an engineer, an architect, any of those traditional careers, they don't give you any business tools. They don't mm -hmm. tell you, you know, hey, by the way, now that we taught you all of these, you have to make a living with this knowledge. And this right. make, making a living requires that you know how to balance a checkbook. And then it requires that you need to know how to do your 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 business and run your finances and close a deal and so i thought you know it was a good time to make that leap into okay let me have a little bit more of a formal education i applied to a few schools and um, one of the schools that accepted me was thunderbird here in phoenix and thunderbird basically the number one school for an mba with an international sort of like focus. It is a very multicultural program where one of the requirements is that you speak at least two languages that you have to prove that you at least were able to do some work and experience abroad. So it was very, very specific and it really, it almost like it talked to me. I was lucky that I got accepted and I am not gonna lie, the first time that I landed in Phoenix to do the first interview, before I accepted, I was puzzled by what am I doing here? I was coming from interviews in Boston, you know, everything was so fancy and beautiful and the architecture was incredible. And all of a sudden I'm landing in Phoenix and the campus of Thunderbird is in an area of the town that is not very um, flamboyant or, you know, very, uh, it, it's an old um, airport base and, uh, and it's in the middle of nowhere. And I was thinking, what am I doing here? But then I walk into the campus and it's, it was like if you walked in this 
alternative reality where everybody was a foreigner, everybody spoke languages. You would go to the cafeteria and there were people speaking in, you know, as many languages as you can imagine. Um, and I thought, okay, this makes perfect sense for me. And, uh, you know, I accepted and I did my MBA here in Phoenix. And the idea of doing the MBA was to go back to architecture from a business development point of view. Mm -hmm. said, okay, and now I'm the most attractive architect because I have my architecture background, but I also have a business background. And I was fooled by it because <laughs> no architecture <laughs> studio ever looked at me. Or when they did, they were really offering me not enough of a salary, you know, to, um, to take an offer. Yeah, well, I was a little overqualified because, you know, I had all of these experience and all of these degrees, and unfortunately, sometimes that plays against you. And mm -hmm. so, and this was also during the dot-com boom. Mm -hmm. So, you know, all my friends were getting offers with, you know, crazy dot-coms at the time, you know, Yahoo, and they were all like, giving these amazing salaries, and I'm like, oh, I'm not going to work for an architecture studio that doesn't pay me, you know, at, at least to pay back my, my MBA because the MBA was paid in cash. Um, we don't have federal loans as foreigners. So this is every time that you pay your tuition went to a credit card. And so I said, I need to sort of like, you know, have a, a return on my investment. And so I ended up working in a dot-com and running the marketing department for a dot-com. And the first, the first job was with this company uh, named Internet Crossing, and what they do is SEO, uh, search engine optimization. And at the time, it was it, because you know this is this is again. Our, it seems like we're talking 50 years ago, but it's only <laughs> 20 years ago. It's ridiculous. I mean, how much we advanced. Uh, but at the time, I remember that the CEO of our company. Uh, was in talks with the owners of Google, and Google was telling us what to do. I mean, it, it was a bizarre reality now if you're looking, you know, back in time. And then one of my clients that we were doing SEO for offered me a job with them, a direct mail company, again, completely unrelated to what my background was. But at that point, I was, you know, eager to make a living, and so I sort of have decided to put my design ambitions on hold and sort of make a living and pay the bills. The thing is that there was an added factor to all of these things, which had to do with my immigration status. I needed, uh, I needed a green card to stay because my H-1B visa, that the one that they give you after an MBA, was expiring. I did it and I worked and the company, the direct mail company, eventually, you know, we got the green card and I had already started to work remotely and that gave me some room to start exploring and going back to my design ambitions. And designing furniture was sort of like the quickest outlet for it. I mean, if I, I found myself with 40 plus years old thinking, okay, what is the next step? What is the next stage of my career? I cannot start building, you know, an architecture firm from scratch. I am not going back to school to validate my architectural degree because that's another two years of, of 
you know, studies and spending and putting in, in on hold, making a living. So I said, let me start designing furniture and let me start designing smaller pieces that sort of give me an outlet to start thinking about design again, but in a faster turnaround, let's say. And started designing furniture. I found this woodworker that um, by case we we met and I said, I have this idea and I would like to explore it with you. And one piece of furniture brought the next one and the next one and the next one. And somehow you put a piece of furniture in a house and the owner asks you, what do you think about the house? What would you do here? And that sort of like started like a snowballing. And mm. it grew to the point where I'm now. Along the way, I was very lucky to find, you know, partners that sort of trusted in my design ability. And uh, back in the day, it was Caesarstown, and now it's Cosentino. But they allowed me to sort of explore that. And as you said before, I think that every single job and situation that I was faced with put me where I am today. Yeah, I was going to say, I don't know any architects who can tell me what SEO is. So that's pretty awesome. <laughs> <laughs> well, I was going to ask you about your creative process. You mentioned that you walk around and snap photos here and there. Is there anything else you do in your creative process or ways that you can drum up inspiration? Are there any activities that you do for each project at the beginning? I always say that my mission, I mean, when I'm working with, with a client that is not a corporate client, but, a, you know, like a, like your regular clients that you work on their houses or, or, or commercial clients, restaurants, you always say, look, my mission here is not to tell you what I like. My mission here is to guide you through the process and making this space yours with the best that there is out there. Of course, there are clients that I work at times that their aesthetic was not my aesthetic. But it would be stupid to think that I would be not a good designer if everything that I do looks the same and that everything that I do looks like my aesthetic. I think that when I'm working with the client, it is my mission to make their taste and their home theirs, not mine but theirs, and then guide them through that process. I don't have memory for names. I, you introduced me to five people by the number five. I forgot the name of the first one. But I have an incredible visual sort of like memory. I remember details and I love spaces. I will remember what somebody wore when I met them five years ago which is kind of like weird, but and a kind of OCD. But, <laughs> but uh, my process is very organic. I'm obsessed with design. I browse design all day long. I'm online and because of my, I have a little bit of attention deficit disorder where I'm doing a task and somehow 30 minutes later, I forgot why. I got online and I'm doing something completely different. It takes me a while <laughs> to go back. Sounds like my whole life. <laughs> yeah, you know, you know, you, you know how it works. You walk, you walk into the grocery store for milk and you leave with like $150 of groceries without your milk. I mean, right. that is exactly what happens. I get distracted very easily with design. I, 
I'm very curious and I'm open to everything. I don't discard anything. Um, I sometimes find inspiration in what some people would consider very ugly. And I find that there is beauty in everything. There is beauty in non-perfect. Perfect is good sometimes, but for me, most of the times, perfect is not perfect. Flaw is what makes something beautiful. I mean, the nod on a, on, on a piece of wood, you know, the imperfection of a texture, those are the kind of things that inspire me. The other thing that kind of like gives me, gives away my age, or though I already told you, I'm 53, is that I still draw. I love to draw. All my projects, I start with a pen and a piece of paper. And I take that very seriously. I sort of miss the boat in learning how to do CAD and how to do certain, you know, design softwares because I wasn't in the industry at that time. And so for me, uh, I am still very, I would say, rustic when it comes to designing. I start with my drawings and then I sort of like tumble into Illustrator and then somehow that tumbles into other people that help me uh, sort of like put in, you know, in beautiful renders and beautiful drawings what I want to do. So the design process is I do, a lot, for example, if there is a very specific project, I do a lot of investigation. I love to research the topic. I love to see what's going on. I love to see what people did in the past with with that specific situation. And I love to sometimes see, you know, situations that don't relate at all to the project, but that somehow could bring some light to a solution for the project. So it's not a very organized process, I would say, unfortunately. It's kind of like messy. Mm -hmm. It is organic. And somehow it all comes together at the end, I would <laughs> I like the word nonlinear for that. Yeah, that is. Thank you. Thank you. Nonlinear. It's a nonlinear way to do things. Uh, you're correct. That's what it is. Are you a tactile person? Are, are yes. you very yes. interested in materials and their qualities and what kind of textures they offer a, a space? I don't know why I'm getting this from you. Yes, I am. I. Okay. I am. I am tactile. I am not only tactile with materials, but I love to touch people. I mean, for me, there has to be a contact. I don't understand these situations where, you know, you don't hug your friends, where you don't. For me, it's like I need to have the contact. And, and the same thing happens with materials. I need to touch it. I need to feel it. I need when I'm doing when I work with wood, I love to be for me one of my biggest turn ons is to go to the shop when we first bought the wood and pick how we place it on the furniture. Whether it's veneer or whether it's uh, solid, I love the process of, of matching the grain. I love the process of let the wood or let the stone speak and mm. let them tell you what to do with it. And I think that that is really, really at the core of who I am. But yeah, I mean, I'm absolutely tactile. Yes, 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 yes. When you're working, you're, you're creating a space, an architectural space that's arguably going to last a very long time. And even your furniture hopefully will live for many generations, not just the next few years. Mm -hmm. 
Do you think about how future generations might interpret your intention with those spaces or those pieces? I mean, what, what do you hope it communicates to future generations? Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Clever is supported by Tools and Weapons, the podcast hosted by Microsoft Vice Chair and President Brad Smith. A recent episode took Brad to Venice, where he connected with Eve Ubelman, a partner whose company, Econem, has developed a game-changing technique for creating digital architectural models so comprehensive they've been dubbed twins. During the relative quiet of the pandemic, Eve and his team used drone-captured photography and powerful AI to create a full-scale digital twin of Venice, a city threatened by climate change and over-tourism. On Tools and Weapons, Eve tells Brad how he's using this incredible technology to help preserve some of the world's most endangered cultural heritage sites in pristine detail so they can be studied and appreciated for generations to come. To stay current on some of the most innovative people working with AI today, follow or subscribe to Tools and Weapons with Brad Smith wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, Clever listeners, we're getting excited for New York Design Week in May. This year will be better than ever. ICFF, North America's leading platform for contemporary design, will take place from May 19th to the 21st at the Javits Center in New York City. I'll be there, and I'm excited to let you know how Clever is collaborating with ICFF for Launchpad at Wanted, formerly known as Wanted Design Manhattan, and the Emerging Designer Showcase. Launchpad is an international platform for emerging designers that introduces new concepts and showcases prototypes of furniture, home accessories, and lighting. It is the best place for manufacturers to meet new designers, discover fresh ideas, and potential products to develop. The best of Launchpad winners will be selected by a jury of renowned industry professionals, led by yours truly. And they will go on to be featured in another edition of the popular Emerging Designers Showcase. I'll be leading the Emerging Designers Showcase live on the talk's main stage, where the five Launchpad finalists will have a chance to present their projects to our esteemed panel of professionals. It's always a really good time. So mark your calendars for Sunday, May 19th at 4 p.m. Both Launchpad and the Emerging Designer Showcase are presented with media partners Clever, that's us, and Design Milk, and with support from American Standard and Lumens. Visit icff.com to learn more and register to attend. 
Those are the letters ICFF.com. Come by and say hi. I would love to see you there. Support for Clever comes from Wix Studio. Instead of reading you another, let's be honest, boring ad script, Wix Studio just sent me this wild-looking Alice in Wonderland-themed website to scroll through and tell you about. So, whoa. This is not the web I'm used to. There's something called Mouse Parallax, which makes it feel like you can go deeper into the screen. And as I scroll down, it's like I'm falling down the rabbit hole. And things are moving in depth and perspective. Even my cursor has morphed into a glowing little orb. There are all these no-code animations that make this place feel organic and alive. And Alice is wearing some pretty cool shoes, by the way. Okay, I know I'm mixing up my narratives now, but we are definitely not in Kansas anymore. Your turn to go down the rabbit hole. Build your next web project on Wix Studio, the platform for agencies and enterprises. I guess that my aesthetic when it comes to designing spaces is kind of atemporal. I don't, I, I am not married to one style. I think that I do pieces. For me, function has to follow form almost all the time. I mean, you cannot design stuff, at least for a home, that it looks just beautiful and it doesn't serve any purpose. I mean, because that, I guess, is our role, is to give you a space that that works. I don't understand, for example, homes that have corners decorated with a chair and a table and a lamp and like, who sits there? <laughs> I Nobody. I look at those all the time, and it's just dumb to me. I'm like, it's not even a good reading nook. Like, I don't want to sit there. I'll feel like I'm punished. Yeah, but thank you. And then they, they do what, I, you know, the, one of my worst, 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 my, one of my pet peeves, vignettes. Let's do a vignette. And when you say vignette, then you killed me. Because then it's like... It looks good in picture, but when you look at the whole space, it makes absolutely no sense. Come on, people. I mean, there, there has to be a way. I mean, for me, again, if we're not going to use that corner because it has no use, we'll leave it empty. We don't need to fill every single corner of the house with stuff. I don't believe in that. We don't live like that. And I'm a big proponent of studying how the families that I work with live and if you all are in the kitchen uh, every day and the girls do the homework in the kitchen and you are in your laptop in the kitchen and everything happens in the kitchen then the kitchen needs to have more space than let's say a formal dining room that Mm -hmm. nobody ever uses other than the occasional thanksgiving dinner where everybody is awkwardly sitting in a place that looks empty Right. And it, it's not activated energetically. It feels like mm-hmm. a utility closet at that point because nobody spent any time living in there. It's dead. It's yeah. dead. It's dead space. For me, those things are, and, and that was one of the things that, you know, it was a shock for me to move to the United States and find out once I started diving into design is to see how homes are designed in the United States. I mean, when you see these developments where, you know, the cookie cutter developments where every house, you know, the Edward Caesar's hand sort of like neighborhood, all the houses are the same. All the houses are, you know, painted in the same color scheme. All the houses have the same floor plan. It's like, I don't get it. I mean, you walk into these spaces where circulations take 30% of the house and you have hallways 
over hallways, hallways that 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 dive into another hallway, that dive into another. Like, <laughs> how do you leave like that? I mean, why not to use that to put something in it? Yeah. So you know, it's it really gets me going, and and it, it upsets me because. It, then what the role of the architect, we have such an important role. We help you live. We help you uh, educate your children. We help you make love to your partner. We give you the mood to, to learn. We give you the mood to, to entertain, to grow your family, to be, I mean, we have such an important role. And it's not being taken seriously at times. And that really enrages me. I, I'm enraged by designers that, you know, that, that put plastic plants on top of kitchen cabinets, for example. It's like, why would you do that? Why would you put a fake, like, you know, like palm on top of a, on, on a basket that you bought at Marshall's? Why would you do that? I don't understand it. <laughs> I share your rage. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. So it's, for me, it's let's figure it out how you live and let's give you the best space possible. And my question is always, do you have a use for that? If you're not going to use it and it's going to sit there under a console because you wanted the bench to look cute under the console, are you ever going to use that bench? No, then let's spend the money somewhere else. Let's put something more meaningful. Maybe that is the wrong console. Maybe that is the wrong space to put a console. But we don't need to fill the spaces in a home. We don't need, you know, this is the other thing. Every, every, I don't know if it happens to you that sometimes you walk into the stores like, you know, the home goods of the world or all of these stores, and people buy chachkis and they buy stuff. And you're like, where are you putting all that stuff? Like, where is it going? At one point, it needs to go on top of a surface that it has to be cleaned and that is taking space away from having something useful on top. So, useful or meaningful that you gathered in your travels or, or that represents something of your family and your history or your goals or, you know. Thank you. Yeah, that's exactly how I feel. Chesky's art like garbage it's 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 more of the same uh, this economy and this that we live which is let's let's consume and let's buy and let's keep buying save it i one at one point i walk into a client for a thing I, usually my first visit to the client the wife usually cries because <laughs> it's like it's like i'm like i'm sorry but i'm gonna either you want me to be honest or i can walk away because if i cannot be honest and be myself then you know I, I, I'm not going to take the job. And so for me, one day I did this exercise with somebody that I walked into the house and after, you know, we, we had become friends. I believe in building the relationship before you start working with anybody because, you know, you're about to put your hands on the most important space they will ever have, which is their home. And so we put on a corner everything that had no use in the house. Like everything that was a chachki, that it was uh, like the baskets, you know, f the fake, the plastic plants, the vases with no use at all, the little plates, the little things. We fill a corner and we added up almost $2,000 of stuff. And I said, with this money, we could have bought a piece of art to put on the wall. 
that is meaningful and that will tell a story and that will make you smile when you look at it. And that for me is what design and the role of us as designers should be, is guide your clients into having a more meaningful space to live. So back to the question, if I design, what do I think when with somebody a few years from now sees it? I hope that they still understand that the piece has a meaning and that is useful 20 years later. And so that for me is basically how I see it. So um, I don't know, it may be a little extreme. No, I really loved it. And I, I do think I, when I walk into a space that was designed a hundred years ago and it's worn by utility and you can see the, the patina of age on things that got well-worn with entertaining, feeding your family, making love to your partner, all yeah. of those things that you just described, they get embedded into the DNA of that structure. And that's what gives it meaning and makes it so exciting. And, you know, when you buy a house that, you're not the first one to live there. I always go for something that has good light and good energy because everything else I can put in there. But that energy comes from a space that has been designed around maximizing how people live and making their lives more meaningful. So I really appreciate what you had to say. And I love how fired up you got about it. I mean, why? Why not to just make meaningful purchases? Why not to edit what you put in there why not to ask for advice you know if you have friends that they can help you just reach out and say hey i i'm i'm, I'm a big proponent of i always say you know some people say well you know i can afford to have you and i'm like that is not the case i am so glad to help anybody and just give my you know my help or my opinion if it is of any use to anybody because i think that good design should be affordable for everybody I want to move from your design life to your personal life because you, you mentioned something earlier that I wanted to ask you about. You said that your Catholic school experience really shaped you, but you had difficulties down the road. Can you talk about that? How? how yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Don't worry. You can say it. I'm gay. So, of course, I crash with my Catholic background. I do believe that... And we're going to get very, very personal here. But anyway, organized religion for me is a fraud, like plain and simple. I do believe that there is some spirit. I mean, that, that there is something out there. I cannot put it in words. Denying that I grew up and my formative years were Catholic would be silly because I still feel that they shape who I am today. But the teachings of the church sort of like contradict who I am. And so at one point I was faced with this dilemma. And the dilemma was, okay, this is who I am. And uh, I'm a good person. I have values. I respect other people's lives. But I am gay. And I like men. And this is something that is unscapable. This is not something that... I learned to do. This is something that it was engraved in who I was as a person. I have always been gay. I fought it for a long time. I dated women for a long time. But at one point when I moved to Italy, I guess the freedom was that I was able to be who I was. I had nobody to respond to for the first time in my life. And I was free to be who I was. And um, 
the teachings of the Catholic Church were in complete, you know, and, and, and strict contradiction to what my life was at the time. And it is today. And I thought, okay, I cannot be part of a religion that thinks that I am going to live in hell for the rest of eternity. Because I'm not a bad person. And I do believe that I'm, um, I'm a good person that has values and that the only thing that changed from before everybody knew that I was gay is the fact that I sleep with men. And that's it. I am still the same person. And I know that this is kind of silly to explain it to you too, but because you know exactly what I'm talking about. But some people need that explanation. You need to tell them, I'm sorry, I'm the same person you knew before you knew I was gay. You liked me before. Why you don't like me now? I mean, I have the same values. I am, you know, I'm the same loving Daniel that you met before you knew it. And I struggled for a long time because it was hard. It was hard. I, there was a lot of rejection. There was a lot of hiding and living in the closet. And then eventually, you know, I came to terms with this is who I am. And, and I'm not going to, I'm not the kind of person that goes with flags everywhere, you know, showing that, you know, I'm gay, but I am the kind of person that, that lives truly and honestly. And, you know, if it comes up that I'm married to a beautiful, loving man like Bobby Costa, I would tell you I'm married to a beautiful, loving man named Bobby. And, he's <laughs> a, you know, he is the love of my life and he is my partner in crime. And he is a person who helped me be a better version of myself. And... I think that that is what life should be all about. I mean, we should all be entitled to find your Bobby. Everybody should be entitled to find the person who rocks the world without being judged and without <laughs> being demonized and without being chastised for the decision that you make. Yeah. So You're going to make I, me cry, Daniel. <laughs> <laughs> You're so right, though. I'm so glad to hear you say this. It's it's just it's just you know life is too short to mm -hmm. to put up with all this bullshit. It's really really too short. I'm so glad you found your Bobby. <laughs> <laughs> I'm glad too. Yeah. But the rea the reality is that it's hard, and 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 being out there and and facing discrimination and facing you know, mockery and bullying and, you know, and I've been bullied before and, you know, and it's not a fun place to be and finding yourself and having the strength to just be you takes a lot of guts and I applaud everybody that embraces, you know, who they are and, and we should all be able to embrace it. I mean, I always say, you have all your straight friends. Has anybody ever walk out and say, hey, uh, I'm married to a man or to a woman, by the way? Nobody says that. Everybody goes around and they enjoy their lives and nobody makes it a topic. Suddenly it becomes a topic when you're gay. And I think that's wrong. And I think that we as a community need to embrace diversity in every way, shape, and form. This is what makes us amazing. This is what makes us a better, you know, a, a, a better place. When, when we forget that we're all the same, that the right for you to love 
who you want to love is the same one as the right that your next door neighbor has. When you forget that, you forget how to be human. Mm-hmm. Again, maybe it's too personal what I'm sharing, but it's, it touches a chord in me. It's, you know, somebody that, again, because I never really went with flags anywhere, and I don't believe, because I don't believe that that is what makes me. I mean, that is a reality. I don't believe that being gay is what makes me. Mm-hmm. It's one more thing that makes me who I am. It's not the thing that defines me. I love that you said that because I do feel like people categorize or stereotype people based on one thing they do. Like, you know, you went to architecture school, so you're an architect, but that's not who you are. I mean, you designed furniture, you know, you did marketing and you got an MBA and, you know, you are a multifaceted human, both professionally and personally and I think everybody's like that but it's just it's a shame that we constantly have to fixate on like one thing that somebody does or is and not think that they're a human with like so many different things that make up who they are you know in this industry is easy because we take it for granted you know I Mm -hmm. mean there's there's an industry that there's tons of gay people in it Somehow it became sort of fashionable to have the gay decorator or the gay designer or the gay architect. And I find that insulting also. I mean, the, you know, it's, you have, you don't have to say anything. You just have to say, this is my friend, Daniel. You don't have to say, oh, this is my gay designer. It's like, well, what do I say? Oh, this is, this is Jamie, my, my straight blogger. <laughs> like, do I, <laughs> You know, this is Amy, my trailer. Like, no, who says that? I mean, nobody says that. So it's just become like this weird, like novelty, like as if you're like a token or something, and and that sucks. Not that this is even anywhere on par with what you're talking about, but because I'm a female and I'm also like a a builder, a maker, a fabricator, and so I'm very hands-on, and I've been a carpenter on TV, and I've always been so repulsed buy like pink tool belts and things that have to like celebrate. I'm like, no, I can, I can be feminine and I can be skilled. And that's, I don't know. I don't need a prop to remind you that I'm a female builder. And also I don't want you to focus on the fact that I'm like doing this and I'm good for a girl. It's like, no, I'm just good. (laughs) You're just good because you are good at what you do. Yeah, Don't reduce my, my femininity and my skills down to some sort of novelty prop. Like that's not, that's not what I'm here to do. And that's going to get in the way of me accomplishing the shit that I set out to do. So fuck (laughs) off. pink tool Uh, belt. (laughs) Thank you. Now we're talking now. Thank you that you opened the gate to the fuck off part. Because now (laughs) all the gates are open. Now get ready. Now it's going to be hard to contain me. No, <laughs> if I knew that we could go there, I would have gone there like 30 minutes ago. <laughs> anyway, uh, but it's, yeah, I mean, I think that we should have more respect for people for who they are and for people, you know, for respect for what they do, regardless of who you are. I mean, who cares what you do or what sex you are? You're awesome. You're awesome. That's it. Tell us about a recent project that you want our listeners to know about, and then also let us know where we can find you on the web and social media so we can follow your future projects. I had the opportunity to design 
and drive the, the project for the Ronald McDonald's uh, Charities of Phoenix, uh, the clubhouse in the original Ronald McDonald's home here in Phoenix. And it was a very dear project because the Ronald McDonald House, what it does is uh, provides housing to families that have their kids in ICU in the Phoenix Children's Hospital. And basically, with $15 a day, they allow you to they give you a bed and a bathroom and use of facilities and a kitchen and, you know, sort of to take, take away the stress out of, like, you taking care of your kid. So they gave me this amazing opportunity to remodel the clubhouse and the kitchen, and, and it was so rewarding to do a project that for one minute, you know, took away the pain of these families to walk into a space that was beautiful. We were able to partner with the Fortul Brothers, which is these two painters that are incredible by coastal artists. They live here in Phoenix and in Brooklyn. And they did murals that embody all the values that we wanted in the project. And, and it's just amazing to see families sort of like, you know, for one second, just be distracted from their struggles and the kids smile even they're walking with their oxygen tanks and they just get blown away by the art and by the you know the design that we did and so that for me was probably the most meaningful design project that I've done in my career yeah that sounds beautiful yeah it sounds wonderful yeah. so you can find me uh, I have a website my website is danielgermanidesigns.com and uh, you can see uh, a selection of what I do. Thank you so much, yeah, Daniel. Thank, thank you. you for sharing your passion and your rage and your philosophies and your story. It's awesome. Well, thank you. I really, really humbled and an honor that two rock stars like you thought that having an hour of my time was meaningful. So <laughs> thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. What a very big-hearted man. Yes. It really gives me the kind of comfort you want in this life to hear somebody talk about design in that way, that he's just so hell-bent on making people's lives better and making people's spaces better. I, I do think that the home is HQ for living your best life, not to sound like Oprah, but um, nothing wrong with Oprah. Um, but I do think it's headquarters for launching you out into the world to do your do your best. And so the home is a very important and sacred space. So I love that he really thinks about it like that. I wish more people thought about it like that. It's a little frustrating to me to see, like he said, these developments that just look very cookie cutter. Like you walk into somebody's house and it looks the same as the last person's house you walked into. I like to walk into a space and feel like it reflects who lives there. Yeah, it reflects their personal story yeah. and their, all their personalities and how they live and yeah, all of that. Yeah, I, I would love to see more of that, more personalization when it comes to our homes and architecture in suburbia. That'd be really nice. Yeah, I've always set a goal for myself that I, I want my home to be like an ever-changing museum. And by museum, I don't mean things are like untouchable. I just mean that it's filled with artifacts that all have a story from people I know, places I've visited, things I've done that, that all have something that if somebody were to ask me about it, I'd have a story to tell or a conversation to start. Mm -hmm. Not just that I 
have this tchotchke that requires extra dusting. Right. <laughs> <laughs> oh or my god, that thing's such a pain in the ass to clean. But he is a, a delightful fellow, and I'm I'm really glad that he shared his whole story about his conflict with the Catholic religion. I know that it's it can be so hard to endure conflicts with your faith, with your cultural mm-hmm. upbringing, but also just being bullied and being told you can't be who you are and then having to figure out for yourself that I am a good person and I am who I am. And he did it, you know, on his own terms. And I, I mm-hmm. just think he's in a really good spot with it now. Yeah, it's very admirable. And it's also not always the case for everybody. So I thought it was really important for him to share how he was able to kind of come to terms with being who he was and being okay that it conflicted with how he grew up. He was able to find, you know, his own personal spirituality and and just be comfortable with who who he was. And that example and that story just puts more power into the atmosphere for other people to do the same. Exactly. Yay, Daniel Germani. Yay, Daniel Germani. (laughs) Thanks, dude. (laughs) Thanks, everybody, for listening. Please subscribe to Clever on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts and go to cleverpodcast.com to sign up for our newsletter, read the show notes and see images of Daniel's work. Connect with us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Clever Podcast. We always love to hear from you. This episode of Clever was edited by Chris Modal of Your Studio with music by L1011. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.